Alright guys, welcome back to Revive School. I mean, it's a, it's a big day. It's a big day for many reasons. One, we're going to be starting a new book of the Bible. I mean, think about this. We've done the Pentateuch, you know, from the Old Testament, we've done the historical books. And then from the New Testament, we've done the Gospels, we've done the book of Acts. But now we're going to start this new season of poetical books. Poetical books, specifically starting with the book of Job. If you look at it, it looks like Job. J-O-B, Job, the book of Job. Now, how this works, if you're brand new to the Revive School, and I just want to say thanks for, for jumping in, we usually take that first portion of the first lesson of that book and talk about the historical backdrop. Because I think it's so interesting to me when people pull verses out of context when you don't even understand who's writing it, who's he writing to. So we're going to kind of get into all of that this morning and allow that as your, your foundation, your basis for the rest of a whole lot of lessons that you're like, wow. This is going to be an interesting book. Now think about that. The title, Job, it bears obviously the name of the, the primary character, as John MacArthur, as he, he says. And, you know, the name might have derived from the Hebrew word, which actually maybe means persecution, which could mean persecuted one or another meaning could be of the name Job, repentant one. So we'll get into this, but over and over and over again, you're going to see this this theme of persecution, of suffering and and oh, by the way, you need to repent in the process. And we'll talk about who's right. We'll talk about who's wrong. And Kevin, what do you think is, what's Job known for? Besides suffering, do you know, Rich, if you were to say the date of Job, any any thoughts on this? I don't know. It's old, though. How old? Is it? I, I'd say it's contemporary of, like, Abraham time, right? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Genesis fits into the end of Genesis, basically. Some would even say this is the oldest book of the Bible. There's a lot of theories on that. I'm going to give you a couple points that come from John MacArthur. One is, is based on Job's age. So if you go to Job 42, verse 16, again, all I want to just do is just paint a picture here of this process. Job 42, verse 16. I mean, Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. So now his lifespan of nearly, interesting enough, if you go to the second point here of 200 years plus. So it would fit, Kevin, in regards to what you're talking about. The patriarchal, patriarchal period, Abraham lived 175 years. So there's this overlap time frame. Uh, the social unit, okay, being the patriarchal family. So just the fact that he talks like this language here, you know, over the course of time, you're not going to have the patriarchal family mentality. You got to look for these kind of things. Now, the Chaldeans, okay, um, they would have been considered uh, can you go to Job 117 for me, Kevin? Job 117 in regards to the Chaldeans, okay, uh, says that messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the animals and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. This Chaldeans were, were nomads and had, be, had not yet become city dwellers. So in this context, just even having that understanding, they were established. So if they're not established, it had to be before that time. Now, in, in my number five point from MacArthur is that Job's wealth was being measured. And I like this one. If you go to ver, uh, one verse three, 
Job's wealth was being measured in livestock, not in gold or silver. So how they measured their wealth would not have been down the road. I mean, these are little things, but hey, how much money you have? Well, I got 7,000 sheep. Like that would have been the language, right? It's not, hey, my house is, you know, 2,000 square feet or 1,500 square feet. My house is, hey, I got four pigs in my backyard. Uh, Job's priestly function was with his family. So that's another interesting, if you go to uh, four and five. Uh, and so there, there's just roles that he would have played uh, even as, as a priest. And then interesting enough, there was silence. One of the other lines about the timing of all this was the silence of Abraham, Israel, Exodus, and the law of Moses in this. You don't, you don't hear this, which was why many people would think it's older than that. It's older than that, that time period. Now, here's the radical thing. Kevin, I'm going to really get specific based on MacArthur here, okay? And then we're going to move on to the next component of the date. The events take, this is what MacArthur says, and I kind of, I kind of like this, take place after the Tower of Babel of Genesis 11, but before Abraham in Genesis 11:27. So there's a thought. This would have happened after the Tower of Babel, but before Abraham in Genesis 11. Now, if you have a different perspective, I'm okay. I just, part of an educational approach is to give you different perspectives of, of what this could be. And that's kind of the beauty of Revive School is that, you know, we're going to lay it out, but you can keep digging in in this. Now, when we, when we talk about uh, the poetical books, you know, we talk about, I, I call them wisdom books. You get this, right? We're on the same page, okay? Poetical or wisdom books. You have Job. You have Psalms. Well, that'll be an interesting one to teach through. You have Proverbs. You have Ecclesiastes. And you have the Song of Solomon, which that changes all the time as well. Song of Songs. So just a couple things. Now, one of the things about the poetical, about the wisdom books, okay, is they're not primarily national in focus, but they're rather personal. You know, a lot of times in the poetic, uh, you know, a lot of times in, um, in the Pentateuch or even in the historical, everything's about Israel. Everything's about the, the bigger picture. This seems to be more about what God's saying to that person. Interesting enough, you're going to have some theological and deeper meanings of life in Job, in Ecclesiastes, in some Psalms, but then you're going to have practicalities of life in the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and the Psalms as well. So there's a lot of different angles, bigger picture, but with wisdom books or poetical books, that's what you're going to find in the book of Job. Now, I want to just kind of walk through, okay, before we kind of jump into some of the teaching, the major realities of Job, okay? One is, is Kevin, our phrase, our one word or a phrase that we have is, Kevin, do you remember what it is? Promised Redeemer. A promised Redeemer. Now, why this is really important is because what you're going to see is there's a whole lot of, and I think this painting already describes pain and suffering is coming. Like it just has this image. So amidst pain and suffering, you have to have this mentality that God is still going to promise a redeemer amidst it all. And in Job 19, we're not going to go there, but that's what you're going to begin to see. And what you're going to see with MacArthur, and I I know this is still a bigger picture here, okay, is that God actually allows his children to walk in sorrow and to walk in pain. Now, why? Sometimes, okay, I think that's really key. Sometimes we go through suffering. Sometimes we go through pain and we're going to see this all throughout the book 
of Job, sometimes it's because of sin. I'm not saying that's the case with Job, but I'm giving you pictures of why we experience sorrow and pain. One is because because of sin. Another one is sometimes for chastening. The reason I think this is important is because as Job's friends begin to speak into Job's life, they're trying to figure out which one is this? Is he going through sin? Is it because he's going through discipline? So I want to just kind of give you some of these options. I think it's really important to have this backdrop. Sometimes you're going to go through sorrow and pain for strengthening. Kevin, how would this, how would, what does that mean, you think? When you understand how to work your way through or trust God through suffering, you come out the other side, usually yeah. able to help somebody else. Like, you know, like, you know, I was thinking about my little daughter, Selah. She does this Spartan race, right? And, you know, sometimes you have to go through this little tunnel, <laughs> right? When you crawl through the tunnel and on the backside is a bunch of mud. And then you have to get on the other side and then you're climbing this net. And it's like this whole process of going through the muck and the mire. It strengthens you, actually, to continue to keep doing this throughout the bigger picture. And so sometimes it's because of sin. Sometimes you go through sorrow and pain because of chastening. Sometimes you go because it's, it's strengthening. Now, I kind of like this one, and some people would probably say, ah, I'm not a big fan of this one. Sometimes you go through this to give an opportunity to reveal God's comfort and His grace. Sometimes it's just simply to reveal how God can comfort you in this process. Sometimes it's to reveal how God's grace can, can uh, reveal himself. And then number five is sometimes it's just unknowable. Why this is, I think, important for our backdrop. You know, it actually, for me, this is more important than understanding the author, uh, the timeline, the historical, uh, the historical perspective I want you to understand as we go through Job, even today, is Job going through this because of sin? Is Job going through the issues because of discipline? Is he going through it so that God can strengthen him? Or is it so God can reveal his grace and his comfort? Or is it just because we don't really know and it's really not for us to figure out? These are what we would call the wisdom books, the poetical books that are going to begin to, hopefully, you can take life lessons and apply it to your life today. And so, Father, I just pray as we jump in with Job 1 today, God, that you would begin to speak to us in a new and fresh way based on this chapter alone. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Kevin, let's dig in, if you can, to Job 1, verse 1. It says this, there was a man in the country of Uz <laughs> named Job. Look how Job is described. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and he turned away from evil. I mean, just right here, you see his character is it's impeccable. His character is incredible. But I mean, think about this. It says he's a man of perfect integrity. He fears God and he turns away from evil. Now, this city, the land of Uz, you know, is north. Uh, many would say, Rich, we had this discussion a little bit, uh, uh, North Arabia, adjacent to Midian. So he's next to at least you can just have this image next to Moses's town. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, yeah, I lived in the time of Moses and Job. They were neighbors. I don't know. I don't know about the time frame there, but I think it's a, an interesting perspective. But now, 
here's what I have to ask this question. When it says he's of perfect integrity, feared God and turned away from evil, Kevin, does this imply that Job is perfect? No. No human being is perfect. In fact, can you go to Job 6, verse 24, Kevin? Job 6, verse 24, just so... Uh, We're on the same page here. It's kind of interesting. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Help me understand what I did wrong. Job has no problem telling me. In fact, you go to Job 7, verse 21. Job's going to have this mentality of like, look, man, I I have issues. I get that. Job 7, 21 says, why not forgive my sin and pardon my transgression? Why would you say that unless he knows he sins? So I want to just say that from the very beginning. Job is not perfect. He's not implying that, but man, his character and his integrity is really looking good. Just as a backdrop here, this is how he's described. Integrity, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. Man, you guys, to me, those three characteristics, all of us could probably work on. How well do I tell the truth? How well do I respect and fear God, and then do I just run away from evil? Now, in this... Go to verse two. It says he had, (laughs) this is why I think it's a miracle when we just read verse one. He has seven sons and three daughters. And yet he still has integrity. (laughs) And yet he still fears God and he turns away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. Crazy enough, he was young enough to father. Can you go to Job 42 verse 13 for me, Kevin? He's got a load of kids. Here it is again. He had seven sons and three daughters. All I'm just trying to say is a bookend. I mean, he, he's got a whole lot of family, but now aside from family, look what he has to take care of. In verse three, it says his estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Look at this description of Job. Job was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. Now, this is a, this is a, this is a drastic claim. Whoever wrote this, this is like Moses, right? He was the most humble man in the face of the earth. Like that, this is kind of the language that you think. It's kind of like the same language of Solomon in 1 Kings 4.30. I mean, he was the, the wisest of them all. You know, it makes me think of Jesus describing John the Baptist. This is the greatest of them all. And so like there's this language of like, hey, if he's elevating, this writer's elevating Job. Job's probably somebody we should really learn from. In fact, Kevin, you have a great picture here for us. I mean, here is Job's Texas ranch. Okay, Look at him. He's got some workers here. He's got a bunch of sheep, a bunch of oxen, got some random kids playing. Here's a random donkey, a camel, but this is what he owns. So to me, the more that God entrusts you with things, it's because you do the small things really, really well. And in verse four, interesting enough, it says his sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. How many sons, Kevin? Seven. Yeah, and then they would send an invitation to their three sisters. You know they actually like each other. They invited the sisters. I don't know. I think this is a cool picture. And it says in verse 5, right? Uh, it says, whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. I mean, do you want, do you want me to start giving examples of this for my family? You know, it's just kind of like, oh, God, did my daughter just say that? Oh, my goodness. Did Job, Job, Jude, Job, Jude, I'm combining all this stuff. It's like Job was so intentional that he wanted his family to walk in integrity. He wanted them to fear God that he's even acting like a priest, Kevin. 
He's even acting like a priest and actually bringing forth burnt offerings because just in case his children have sinned, just in case, even though they're not saying out loud they're cursing God, he wants all of that to be to, to be taken away. And this is a regular practice. This is a regular discipline of confessing and repentance on behalf of his family. I love this image. Not only do they get together and eat as a family, but Manny wants to make sure that the, the Job folks, I don't know what his last name was. I was trying to come up with the, the Uzites, right? Job of the Uzites. Like he actually is coming before the Lord because he wants all of the bases covered. And I don't actually think this is legalistic, you guys. I think this is a true desire of his heart. He wants his family to walk upright. I don't know. I, I'm going to go there with you guys. Do you guys? I, I don't. Do you confess to the Lord on behalf of sometimes of your kids' sins? Kevin? I think there's a desire to do that, but there's also a desire that we our relationship needs to be it's personal. So how do you how do you balance that? You can't your faith can't be their faith. And so I, I Kevin, I hear what you're saying about you wanting them to own this, but at this point I you still want your kids just to walk with the Lord. And I, I think that's the, the heart behind this. And so in verse six it just says, you know, one day. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, this is an interesting dialogue about who the heck is that? One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also, Satan also came with them. Now, a lot of people would clearly say the sons of God are the angelic hosts. That's kind of where many, many people go. Uh, These angelic hosts that are coming before God's throne to render account of their ministry throughout heaven and earth. Like they're coming before him in some form of, as weird as it sounds, accountability. Can I back that up? No, I can't. I'm just trying to give you an image of what this possibly could look like. You know, Nelson's commentary even goes so far as that here you have a heavenly council, which is coming before the Lord, because the Lord obviously sits as a supreme king, and they're coming before him of what they're seeing. Again, please don't take this as, as dogma. I'm, just, I'm trying to paint a picture here of, of what many theologians would say, and I, I do think there's something to this. Now, I have this image. This is a cool image. There's an image of the courtroom right here. They're coming before the Lord. They're coming before the King, and and so is is Satan. Now, Satan. I mean, we we know who Satan is. He is obviously the adversary. I have a little bit of a description here. Satan is in rebellion. He is actually still accountable to God. He originally was an angel of God. He still is in some form. And he became corrupt based on his own pride. Remember this. He obviously wanted to rob God from his glory because he wanted his own glory. So here you have the the mentality of the angels coming before him. You have Satan coming before him. Kind of like, you know, when somebody's coming ready to tell on somebody and you want to make sure you're there so that you can get your side of the story. That's kind of the image that I have. So here you have a whole lot of angels. Here you have a fallen angel because that's what Satan is, a fallen angel. And they come before the Lord and it says in verse 7. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming throughout the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Question, do you guys think God didn't really know where Satan was? No. This question makes me think of what? The garden, right? You know, it's kind of this mentality. Of, I just want to hear what you're going to say. And he says, well, I'm roaming around and I'm going around trying to, trying to rule. I'm the ruler of demons. I'm the prince of this earth. I, I am more rapidly coming in like a roaring lion. I mean, this is the mentality of Satan. He knows he has a limited time. And then the Lord said to Satan, okay, have you considered my servant Job? 
The guy who has seven sons and three daughters, he's got a lot of camel, he's got a lot of sheep. Have you ever considered him? No one else on earth is like him. That would reiterate what we've already heard. He's one of the greatest men on earth. He's a man of perfect integrity who fears God and he turns away from evil. Where have we seen this already? He is described in verse 1, Job 1, 1. Same thing. He's a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And Satan, just in case you didn't know, I'm going to tell you this is who Job is. And then Satan said to the Lord in verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, what does that mean, you guys? Just that question. What do, you, what do you mean for nothing? A give and take. It's a bargaining. The reason he fears you is because you've given him something. Because he, he thinks he's going to keep receiving something, right? So it's, it's almost like a bribe. Like if you keep fearing God, it's because you keep fearing God because, oh, you have more sheep. You keep fearing God because you can have more kids, right? That's kind of the deal. But would he fear God, Satan says, if nothing was on the table except just fearing God alone? And in verse 10, it says, haven't you placed a hedge around him? You know, the spiritual dome, his household and everything he owns. And you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased in the land. In other words, man, I see you've completely blessed him. But here's what I want you to do, God, Satan says. I want you to stretch out your hand and I want you to strike everything he owns. And he'll surely, surely he'll curse you to your face. I mean, this is the, the courtroom scenario. There's the Lord, there's the sons of God, the angelic host, and there's Satan. And then all of a sudden, Job doesn't even know he's a discussion. That's the crazy thing, you guys. I just kind of picture Job's face up on the, on, on the keynote presentation. This guy? This is the guy who fears God. Surely he's going to curse you. And Satan's like, oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be easy. And in verse 12, the Lord says, very well. What? Wait, what? Just so you know, Satan did this to others in Scripture. In Matthew 4, he clearly tried to do this with Jesus. He tried to get Jesus to turn against the Lord. He tried to get the Peter to do this in Luke 22. He tried to get Paul to do this in 2 Corinthians 12. And so Satan's goal is to always take people off their perspective, their looks, their desire, everything, their attention, their focus. They, he wants it off of the Lord. And so the Lord actually agrees to this negotiation. The Lord actually agrees with this conversation with Satan. Satan says, look, if you can just go for it, take everything away, surely he's going to turn away. And, and, and the Lord says, very well, everything he owns is in your power. What does that say? It says that the Lord is the one who allows Satan to do what he wants to do. Is that an accurate statement? Satan does not have the control. He does not have the power. It's what God allows Satan to do, according to this verse. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So you can go after all of his possessions, but you, don't you dare physically harm Job at this moment. And so Satan's like, well, oh, sweet, I'm in. So he left the Lord's presence. Kevin, what was, what was the deal at this point with the Lord's courtroom? Uh, he could touch pretty much anything except for Job himself. So his physical body you can't touch. And so here's what happens. Four disasters, four rapid disasters are going to come Job's way. So just kind of get ready for this. This deal took place and then boom, here we go. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating. Remember, this is their family time and drinking wine in their older brother's, oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and he reported while the oxen were plowing 
and the donkeys were grazing nearby, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see then disaster number one. Disaster number one in verse 15. And what you're going to see is the Sabians swooped down and took them away. I'm sorry, took who away? Right? While the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing by, the Sabians swooped down, took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So here you have a messenger that's coming to say, hey, by the way, all the animals and the servants, man, they're gone. That's disaster number one. Now, the crazy thing is, Job does not know about Satan and the Lord's negotiation. That's just one. Scripture continues on, and I think this is interesting, okay? Now, one of the, one of the commentators said that disaster came from earth. I'll explain that, what that means here in a second, okay? But now watch, when you get into verse 16, he was still speaking when another messenger came, and it says, a lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep, and the servants, and devoured them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now you have disaster number two, coming from verse 16. Now, where did this disaster come from, Kevin? Lightning storm. Yeah, from heaven, Scripture says. It came from up above. So here you have a disaster that came from earth, and then you have a disaster that came from heaven. Now, he's lost animals and he's lost servants. What did he lose here? He lost animals and he lost servants. I'm not saying that that's not personal, but it it doesn't necessarily... We're not talking family here, and I'm not saying he doesn't know his servants, like all of these people that are taking place, but, you know, it's kind of one of those, oh, that could have just been a, a fluke. You know, that could have just been, ah, that's kind of weird, but, you know, I think you get the point. Now watch this. In verse 17, here we go again, disaster number three. Now all of this came from the negotiation, you guys, very simply of the Lord and Satan, the sons of God are there, and Satan said, or God said to Satan, you you just can't harm Job. That messenger was still speaking. So these messengers are reporting to Job. Another one comes in. He says, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and then they took them. They struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So now the camels are gone. Now the servants are gone. And then one guy has left. And then the scripture says, you know, this is a mentality that here it is from earth. Right? So these are the enemies. That's what we're getting at when we say earth. The enemies would have been, obviously, the Sabians at the very beginning of verse 15. Now you have the Chaldeans. So what can you expect as you get ready to go to one more disaster? In verse 18, it says he was still speaking. At this point, I'd be like, no more lines, please. He was still speaking when another messenger came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. So here we have disaster number four. And disaster number four comes in verse 18. And the scripture says this, While he was still speaking, they're eating there. In verse 19, suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So the next thing you know, according to this verse, we don't know how many at this point. We just know a powerful wind came in and killed his kids. And so here you have a disaster that came from heaven. You have four disasters that took place. Remember our beginning of our message, why does sorrow and pain happen? Is it because of sin? Is it because of disciplining? Is it because of strengthening? Is it because of opportunities that God show up? Is it just we don't know? I don't know these answers. We just know that there's been some negotiation going on. And I want you to go back to, we're going to get to Job 19 eventually, that there's a promised redeemer amidst all of this disasters. 
That God wants to give us hope amidst, yes, losing your animals, amidst losing your kids, amidst losing your servants, whatever the case is. Where are we keeping our eyes amidst all of this? Job, it says, he stood up in verse 20, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And this is what he said, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this earth. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Who does Job turn to amidst all this disaster? God himself. God gives life, God takes it away. Praise the name of Yahweh. And in verse 22, throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Why? Because in Job 1, it says, he is a man of perfect integrity, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. He kept his eyes on the promised Redeemer. Folks, this is uh, Job 1, lesson 1, and there's so much here that we get to unpack. The crazy thing is, is we're just beginning the negotiation between the Lord and Satan and what Satan can do with Job. All right, guys, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.